0: Good morning. Today's reading is from Ecclesiastes, the first chapter 1, 1 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I have plied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, All is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good
1: morning. morning. I need to adjust this just real briefly. (laughs) Hang on. And after that scripture reading, part of me feels like all I should say is, happy Sunday. (laughs) Everything's futile. No one's going to remember you when you die. All right. Go in peace. Um, No, welcome to our new series, uh, Life Up in Smoke. We are going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And after hearing our passage read this morning, some of you might be thinking, how in the world is that in the Bible? (laughs) Uh, Is that really in there? And I am here to tell you that it is It is really in there And maybe that realization makes you feel a bit like this Uh, Before we really get into it Some of you might know that picture It's going to come up later Before we really get into it Let me share with you just some inside info This sermon series has been on the docket for quite some time We've had this prepared for a while We didn't actually preach it when we originally had it Scheduled. And as you might expect, we plan out our sermon series like quite a bit in advance. And we had it ready to go. We had graphics made. It was all prepared. That was two years ago. It was set to launch April of 2020. Doesn't take much thinking to remember what happened there. And we thought to ourselves at that time you know, a series called Life Up in Smoke feels a little too on the nose. So, two years later, for many of us, our lives are functionally back to normal, even if it's a slightly new normal, and so we thought to ourselves, it's probably time to remind people that their lives could fall apart at any moment again. (laughs) Now's the time. No, I'm joking, of course. We believe now to be an appropriate time to walk through this important book, and on a more serious note, we all know in the back of our heads that life can go up in smoke at any moment. And what's significant about our series is that we are being reminded the Bible knows that too. You see, the Bible is realistic. It's about realism. One of the reasons we can trust the Bible isn't because it's void of human experience. The Bible doesn't try to hide from suffering. It doesn't try to hide from fu- the futility of life. The Bible doesn't just nod at the difficult realities of life and then give us a positive thinking pep talk of just cheer up, it will all work out in the end. No, the Bible tells us truth about reality. That means, at times, things can get uncomfortable. You know, once I heard this illustration that when the sun is setting, the fastest way to get to the sun is not to run after the sun. No, when the sun is setting, If you're trying to get to the sun, the fastest way to do it is not to chase after the sunset. It's to turn around, turn towards the darkness, run into the darkness, and at some point, you'll get to the sunrise. That's the quickest way to get to the sun. And in some ways, that is what we are going to be doing this morning. We are turning towards the darkness. We are going to face it. We're going to go in. And all the while, we need to keep in mind that we are going to encounter the sun at some point. We will. On the other side is the sun. We just have to get through the darkness. We have to go into the darkness, we really do, in order to get there. So with that said, I'm just warning you here at the outset, it's going to be a different kind of sermon. (laughs) This might not be fun for some of you. And I don't say that because I want you to leave. Please stay in your seats. Um, I want you to stay and hear what the author of Ecclesiastes has to say. Others of you might enjoy this because you feel like it speaks, it resonates with you. It speaks to some deep truth that resonates with you. Regardless of where you find yourself, let me encourage you to just sit with the passage this morning. Just, I say that to forewarn you, this is, some of you are going to wrestle deeply with what I have to say today. And I want to introduce someone to you who throughout our time together is going to help us turn towards the darkness. He's going to help us see the sun, too, but that person is the artist who painted The Scream. That was just up. That is up there behind me. You've probably seen this painting before. It's called The Scream, and it's painted by the guy of the name of Edvard Munch. And throughout our time together, I'm going to use a number of Munch paintings to help us illustrate what Ecclesiastes is telling us. And there are two reasons for this. One is that our passage, is read, which was read so beautifully by Sherry this morning, is actually a poem. Much of it is actually a poem. Oftentimes, it's helpful to use visual art to supplant, like, supplement written art. The second reason is that Ecclesiastes is not a book of propositional statements. It wants to evoke a feeling from us. It wants to pull something from us, bring something from our deep. Edward Munch wanted to do the same thing with his art. I first started digging into him when I read this book called So Much Longing in So Little Space, The Art of Edward Munch. And what I learned about Munch's work is that it's highly emotive. He wanted to evoke or summon a deep response from us. And if you look carefully at the painting, there are two people in the background. They're walking away from the scene. The people are totally unconcerned, unbothered with what this person is experiencing. The main figure is this person in the foreground. He's facing us with this wild look. And it's almost as if the figure is saying, this, everything is not okay. Why doesn't anyone else notice? When the printed piece of this work came out, Munch wrote at the bottom of it, I felt a great scream pass through nature. The painting draws some type of emotional response from us. We can't help that. And here's my point. Munk is showing us through this painting the same thing the teacher in Ecclesiastes is telling us. Life under the sun can feel like the world is just turning and turning. Everything is moving around us. Life is going and going and going. And then there are moments where we stop and suddenly we have a realization. And it makes us say, everything is not okay. Does anyone else even notice that? Everything is not Okay. In our passage this morning, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is telling us there are three signs that things are not okay. There are three signs that things are not okay, three signs that you're living life under that blood orange sun that's painted in that picture. And the teacher wants us to pay attention to these things. Let me show you. Look with me at the first four verses in Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem absolute futility says the teacher absolute futility everything is futile what does a person gain for his efforts that he labors under the sun a generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever that word futility in some translations translates as vanity it's used 38 times in the book so as we go through ecclesiastes every time you see it just make note of it it's the drumbeat That lies behind the entire book. And the teacher says everything is futile. In other words, everything is meaningless. All is vapor. It's mist. It's pointless. It's all hollow. All of it. And here's the first sign that you're living life under the sun. Progress escapes you. Progress escapes you. Let's keep reading into verses 5 through 11. You'll see the teacher makes this point very clear. The sun rises and the sun sets. Panting, it hurries back to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north. Turning, turning goes the wind. And the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are wearisome. More than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. What has been done, what, is will, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can anyone say, "Look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before. And all of those who come after, there will be no remembrance by those who follow them. Whoa. It's almost as if the teacher is asking, where have you seen progress? Look at the world, where have you seen it? Where exactly have you seen it? Can you tell me? Let me give you some examples of things I think he's referring to. Here's an insignificant one. Think of all the chores you do on a daily or weekly basis. You keep having to do them over and over and over again. Do you do the dishes in your home? Dirty dishes are always there. They will forever be there the entirety of your life. You do the dishes one day, and what do you have to do the next day? Dishes. And the next day, dishes. You rinse the dishes. You put them in the dishwasher. You take them out. You put them away. The next day, you have dirty dishes in your sink, so you rinse them, so you put them in the dishwasher. You take them out. You put them away. Is there ever relief from dirty dishes? Never. There will always be more grass to cut. You will always pay taxes every year. Your email inbox will always be filled with more and more emails. There are so many things like it we spend countless hours of our lives doing. These are small examples, but they're the repetitive, mundane things that suck up time in our life. Where's the relief from them? There is none. A larger scale example for you. This should hit home based on what's on the other side of the world. How about war? People have been fighting war for thousands and thousands of years. Shouldn't we have at some point figured out a way to move past war? To avoid war? To stop pointless death? We haven't. We Yes, we have different kind of technology, but war is not different. War looks the same. People fight other people. People kill other people. Tanks now in place of chariots. Assault rifles instead of arrows. Cruise missiles instead of catapults. Tell me where you have seen the progress. Think about money and resources. We have the most resources in human history to be able to end world hunger. What have we done? Have we done that? No. Greed still rules the day. Think about relationships. People have always fallen in love. It's a beautiful thing, beautiful thing, a part of being human. People still cheat. People lust. People hurt one another. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. Wouldn't you have thought at some point we would have figured out how to move past all that? We haven't. Now I'm going to ask you something difficult. Where have you seen progress in your own life? Do you still have the same desires you've always had? How do you spend your days? Weren't you trying to be more productive? What impact have you had on the world? What, what was it that you hoped that you would be doing? Think back to three or four generations in your family. Do you know those people's names? Do you know what they did with their lives? Who they loved? What their gifts were? What their dreams were? The teacher in Ecclesiastes says, look at yourself in the world, what's the progress? There is none. We work super hard and what little progress we make is lost to the next generation. As hard as we try, we just can't seem to make progress as a human race, as a culture, and even in our individual lives. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna keep going. As I was thinking about this point, I thought to myself, I think I can actually make an argument that even if we gain some things in our lives, even if we gain and we grow, we experience some growth, we also experience an equal or greater amount of loss. Let me explain. Many of you know that I like to read Christian spiritualists. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Henri Nouwen. He was this Catholic priest who taught at Harvard and other prestigious institutions, and he left to go work with the mentally handicapped in Toronto, and he spent most of his life doing that. And I think he embodies the futility of life in this quote from his book, With Burning Hearts. And this quote is a bit on the longer side, so just. I'm preparing you, just to bear with me. It will go on for a few slides, okay? It says this, Sometimes it seems as if life is just one long series of losses. When we were born, we lost the safety of the womb. When we went to school, we lost the security of our family life. When we got our first job, we lost the freedom of our youth. When we got married, we lost the joy of many options. When we grew old, we lost our good looks, our old friends, or our fame. When we became weak or ill, we lost our physical independence, and when we die, we lose it all. The losses that settle themselves deeply in our hearts and minds are the loss of intimacy through separations, the loss of safety through violence, the loss of innocence through abuse, the loss of friends through betrayal, the loss of love through abandonment, the loss of home through war, the loss of well-being through hunger, heat, and cold, the loss of children through illness or accidents, the loss of country through political upheaval, the loss of life through earthquakes, floods, plane crashes, bombings, and diseases. Perhaps many of these dark losses are far away from most of us. Maybe they belong to the world of newspapers and television dreams, television screams, But nobody can escape the agonizing losses that are a part of everyday existence, the loss of our dreams. As we move through life, we might be gaining, but we're also losing. And some of us may lose to a greater degree than what we gain. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. There is no remembrance of those who came before, And of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. This is our reality. Can you bear to look at it? You know what happens when we look closely at the futility of our world and we really turn towards it, maybe it's what you're feeling now. (laughs) That is despair. (laughs) And this... Despair is captured so well by Munch in his painting, which is appropriately called despair. <laughs> As you look at this painting, notice the similarity to the scream. Notice the sky, the blood orange sky. It's on the same or similar walkway. There are two people walking away, just in the same way. Friends, there's nothing new under the sun. Progress eludes us. And this can lead us to despair. Despair. The teacher is telling us, he is teaching us, this is the first sign of life under the sun. You know you're living under the sun when progress escapes you. You might be thinking, well, Ben, that's all I can handle for today. Thank you. But I have good news. There's more. (laughs) Here's the second sign. The second sign is satisfaction eludes you. The second sign that you're living life under the sun is that satisfaction eludes you. Look with me again at verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. This is the point. Satisfaction is a momentary thing. For whatever reason, we are always looking for it, right? And then when we find it, we can never quite seem to hold it as long as we want to. We can't keep it. In February, a guy by the name of Arthur Brooks, he's a Harvard professor and a former president of the American Enterprise Institute, he wrote an article in The Atlantic that wrestled with this satisfaction problem. One of the examples he gave was LeBron James. Now, I'm from the same, I'm from Akron, Ohio, same hometown as LeBron. Grew up when I was in fifth grade, you know, he was playing high school and packing out stadiums, and so cool. Um, (laughs) I was just, just watching him as a fifth grader, yeah. One of the examples he gives of LeBron James when he lost the NBA championship to the Golden State Warriors was this picture. Even though LeBron has all of the world's wealth, and he is arguably one of the greatest players to ever play the game, all of this meant nothing to him in his loss. You look at his response. He was totally unsatisfied. All he wanted was to win. Arthur Brooks notes that the satisfaction problem isn't just a Western or modern-day phenomenon. Brooks tells the story of Abdul al-Rahman III, who ruled as a caliph in Spain in the 10th century. And at the age of 70, this guy wrote this, I have now reigned above 50 years in victory or peace, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, respected by my allies. Riches and honor and power and pleasure have waited on my call. Here's the punchline. This is how he finishes. I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. 14 days of happiness when everything in the world is at your disposal. Brooks continues on and says in his article, It is so simple, yet its power is deeply encoded within us. Give a two-year-old the French fry she is reaching for and see her satisfied expression. Then after a couple of seconds, watch the wanting return. And that's the actual problem, isn't it? The stone song should really have been titled, I Can't Keep No Satisfaction. It's almost as if our brains are programmed to prevent us from enjoying anything for very long. When I think of the satisfaction problem, the way I see it play out so much is through achievement. We often try to find satisfaction in America through some type of achievement, whether it's getting into the right school or getting the job, the promotion, the award, the whatever. And there's something about achieving the next thing that makes us think we will finally be satisfied with ourselves if we get it, if we only have it, if we're able to grasp it. I think this video captures that pretty well. So take a look from the upcoming film, True Crimes, please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey.
2: Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner. Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. (laughs) No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning (laughs) actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. it would finally be true and I could stop this this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me
1: but these are important these awards (laughs) that's my favorite line but these are important these awards I've never heard a more sarcastic Statement in my life. For some reason, we are convinced that if we will achieve the next thing, we'll finally be the person we want to be. We can finally be proud of ourselves. We can finally rest and be content with who we are. Ultimately, we are trying to become satisfied with ourselves through our accomplishments. Achieve- achievement gives us status. It gets us money. It might get us some type of fame. But most importantly, it gives us an identity we can be proud of. And the Christian poet, Christian Wyman, offers us a critique of that posture in his book, My Bright Abyss, The Meditations of a Modern Believer. He says, no, all ambition has the reek of disease about it, the relentless smell of the self, the need for approval, publication, self-promotion. Isn't this what usually goes under the name of ambition? The effort is to make ourselves more real to ourselves, to feel that we have (laughs) selves, So long as your ambition is to stamp your existence upon existence, your nature on nature, then your ambition is corrupt and you are pursuing a ghost. When we live life under the sun, we have to reckon with the fact that satisfaction forever eludes us. There is nothing that can ultimately satisfy on this earth. There is no achievement that will be enough, no amount of money that is enough, no sex that is enough, no amount of fame that is ultimately enough. There is nothing that can satisfy you. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, this is a sign you are living life under the sun. He says it this way, the eye is not satisfied by seeing, nor the ear is filled with hearing. And what are we to do with that? How are we to process that? Well, I think we ultimately don't (laughs) process that. And in the process of trying to constantly satiate our satisfaction problem and not confront it, we become anxious people. To be clear, there's an anxiety that needs to be treated by counselors and psychiatrists. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about general, more run-of-the-mill type of anxiety that grips people as they are endlessly trying to satisfy themselves with the next thing. And again, Edward Monk captures this well in his painting called Anxiety. <laughs> Monk is trying to show people who have been gripped by the culture that they live in and thus they're equally gripped by anxiety. This painting represents the societal problem of anxiety that has really become a cultural artifact of living in the modern world. Progress escapes us, so we tend to despair. Satisfaction evades us, we drift into anxiety. The teacher has one more sign for us. Keeps going. One more sign we are living life under the sun, and that sign is this, understanding evades you. Look with me one more time at our passage, starting in verse 12. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under the heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this, too, is pursuit of the wind, for with much wisdom is much sorrow." And as knowledge increases, grief increases. The teacher tells us in this verse that he has done more study and searching than anyone else before him, and yet he still comes up short. Instead of finding wisdom and happiness, he found wisdom and sorrow. Instead of finding knowledge and contentment, he found knowledge and grief, and ultimately, the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge is meaningless. You know, I heard one college commencement speaker say this to young ambitious students graduating with the thoughts of impacting and changing the world. This is what he said to them. Maybe try to go and live a little bit. Maybe try to go and live and understand the world that you live in before you try to change it. If you do that, then you'll realize the world and its problems are endlessly complex and they are not solved by your zealousness. It's often the most brilliant philosophers, researchers, and professors that find themselves with a very sober posture when approaching the reality of the world. The greater your insight into the problems this world faces, the more you understand how complex and intractable they are. Can anything be done? Can we really understand anything? Do we have too many limitations? Again, Munch captures this feeling of reality in his painting, Melancholy. You see a man considering the world. He's gripped with one emotion, sadness. The teacher in our passage says it's like this, as knowledge increases, grief increases, as wisdom increases, sorrow increases. The pursuit of these things are like the wind. The more you learn, the less you understand. You keep trying to grasp it, but at some point you have to realize there's actually nothing to grasp. Understanding evades us. Satisfaction eludes us. Progress escapes us. This is life under the sun. What a sermon. (laughs) What a message. Fun stuff, huh? Go team. Before we finish up, We've got a ways to go here, but before we finish up, I have, I have two brief takeaways I want to leave you with. Here's the first one. Face the signs. Don't ignore them. Face the signs that you're living life under the sun. Don't ignore them. We can't live a wise life if we just put our heads in the sand trying to ignore the complex realities of existence. You might say, why, Ben? Isn't everything meaningless anyways? Isn't that what Ecclesiastes is saying to me? No. That's not actually what Ecclesiastes is saying to you. Things would be ultimately meaningless if there wasn't life over the sun. There is life over the sun. And the author of Ecclesiastes will get there. He's going to get there as we go through this series. He just makes us sit in the depths for a while. Ecclesiastes does its work by confronting us. That's how it does it. Let it deconstruct what you think of culture perhaps some of what you think of faith, too. Let Ecclesiastes poke holes in the common responses and trite answers that feel comfortable, but they don't fit the reality of life. To ignore the brutal realities of life is to set ourselves up for an eventual crisis of faith. And at some point in our lives, we are all going to encounter a difficult reality that we can't ignore, it's impossible to ignore. And what will we do then? Ecclesiastes helps us prepare for that moment. It's training off the spot. And here's the second one. Expect the frustration. Don't be surprised by it. A wise life knows everything isn't simple. Oftentimes, things are unfair. Oftentimes, our best efforts will fail. Oftentimes, things don't work out as they should. A few weeks ago, I wrote a blog for Christ Community. that had some devotional thoughts on Psalm 131. And in the blog, I confessed that there are many times in my life, I have tried to make sense of everything, almost incessantly. It's like I've had this, like had this obsession that things need to make sense. Things need to be explained. And as I've grown older, hopefully a bit wiser, <laughs> I've realized that I really can't explain everything. I can't tell you why things happen. I can't find a reliable pattern, I can't make sense of everything, and you know what Psalm 131 tells me? Is that's okay. That's what it means to live life under the sun. We live in a broken world, and we don't need to be perpetually surprised by that fact. Expect the frustration, don't be surprised by it. Before we close, I need to remind you of something. I said at the beginning of our time together that when the sun sets the quickest way to get to the sun is not to chase it, but turn towards the darkness in order to get to the sun again. We face the darkness together this morning, and the sun is coming too. We are living life under the sun, but there is one over the sun who gives life. Friends, do not forget there is one over the sun who gives life. What we heard this morning by the teacher in Ecclesiastes is even though it might speak to our lived experience, it doesn't actually have the final word. As we go through Ecclesiastes, we're going to see that there is real hope. And the reason that we're studying Ecclesiastes isn't just to be a downer, like a, for six weeks, you know, like that's not why we're doing it. We actually are going through Ecclesiastes because we believe it will be a deeply hopeful experience. How? Well, Ecclesiastes only speaks to one act of the entire play of God's redemption story. So go with me here. The teacher is saying he has looked everywhere on earth and everything is meaningless. But you know what? He's actually saying something really significant by not saying it all. In a roundabout way, here is what he's actually saying. This is what's actually happening. The teacher said he's looked everywhere for progress, right? He's looked everywhere on earth and he can't find it. What the author of Ecclesiastes is doing is he's pointing us to the one place the teacher hasn't looked. Where has the teacher not looked? A place or someone not on the earth? The teacher has said he's looked everywhere for satisfaction. He searched the whole earth for it, but actually the author is pointing us to the one place the teacher hasn't looked for satisfaction. The teacher said he's looked everywhere for understanding and he can't find it, but once again there is one place he hasn't looked for understanding. Ecclesiastes reminds us of the haunting feeling of insatiable longing in our pursuits under the sun, but there is one over the sun who offers meaning where there is meaninglessness, light where there is darkness, hope where there is hopelessness, progress where progress seems impossible, satisfaction where there seems to be nothing That can satisfy. An understanding in the midst of confusion because there is one for whom and in whom all things make sense. The early church father, Augustine, he wrote about how God satisfies in no earthly things but could in this way. What do I love when I love my God? It's not physical beauty or temporal glory or the brightness of light dear to earthly eyes or sweet melodies of all kinds of songs or the gentle odor of the flowers, and ointments, and of perfumes, or manna, or honey, or limbs welcoming the embraces of of the flesh. It is not these I love when I love my God. Yet there is a light I love, and a food, and a kind of embrace when I love my God, a light, voice, odor, food, embrace of my innerness, where my soul is floodlit by light which space cannot contain, where there is a sound that time cannot seize where there is perfume which no breeze disperses, where there is a taste for food no amount of eating can lessen, where there is a bond of union that no satiety can part. That is what I love when I love my God. There is one over the sun who gives you life. And as you leave today, take a moment and take a good look at your life and of the world and of the futility of the world, but then I invite you to do something else and look at the one the teacher doesn't look to, take a good look at the one over the son who gives life. Seek him out. In him, all of our insatiable longings can finally be satisfied. Here's one last painting from Edvard Munch. It's simply entitled The Sun," <laughs> And you can see it stands in stark contrast to all of his other works. Munch scholars point out that there is one reason for that. And it's that he intended the Son to represent God, who is the source of all life. Friends, I'll say it one more time. There is one above the Son who is the source of all things. And he wants to give you life. And he sent his Son, not S-U-N, S-O-N, to give you life. And that's why we celebrated Easter. Will you let him give you life? Will you let him walk you into that place? Continue with us for the next six weeks, please. And you'll see how he does that. We invite you along for the journey. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for your words. And it's not just black words on white pages. It's the words of life. We trust you in that. Lord, we know that Living life under the sun can be confusing. But in you all things make sense. And that it feels like all is lost, but with you nothing is lost. Jesus died as a failure on the cross. And yet that was the most impactful thing this world has ever seen. With you there's resurrection power. With you there's new life. Would you do that in us and through us? We love you, Lord. It's in the name of your Son, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, that we pray these things. Amen.